verse 2 of Titus 1. In the hope of eternal life that God who never lies promised before the ages began. Again, the hope of eternal life that God who never lies promised before the ages began. You ever read a little verse like that and just raises more questions than it answers? I'm a big fan of that. I'm a big fan of asking the Bible questions. I'm a big fan of turn Google off. Don't Google it. Sit and actually write out your questions and process it. Think about it. Pray about it. And just relax in it. There's something really helpful about sitting with questions. Can you imagine being any saint from any other generation that didn't have any search engines? You were stuck with the Bible and the Holy Spirit and maybe a very meager set of extra-biblical resources to help you interpret it. Were you disadvantaged or were you advantaged? If you add more and more and more features to your life, are you making your life more rich and more full? Or are you making your life more distracted and less focused? Or are we just so used to having information at our fingertips that we don't know what it's like to have questions, to live with questions, and to think deeply about things? Here's questions that occurred to me as I read one verse, Titus 1, verse 2. The hope of eternal life that God who never lies promised before the ages began. What are ages? I know it's the Greek word eon. What is an age? Before the ages began. So when did ages begin? And what is it? What do you call the time before ages begin? What is hope? I've heard it said hope is the expectation of future good. I've made much of the idea that the way we use hope in English is more like hope so, and that's not what the Bible means by the word hope. Things are going to get better, maybe is the, right, the short summary. God promised the hope of eternal life before the ages began. When, when was that? When did the ages begin? When did God give this promise? Where did God give this promise? He takes for granted that they both understand what he's referring to. When is this promise? Where? Is it in Genesis 1 or 2 or 3? Or is it in Proverbs talking about wisdom? Wisdom's pre-existence before the creation, the one that gave order to the creation, the one who worked with God in creation? Back to the eon thing. Are eons similar to the word generation. In the scripture, a generation came to be affiliated or associated with the idea roughly of 40 years, probably because of the exodus. God was displeased with that generation that disobeyed and disbelieved him. And so he waited till that whole generation died off. And it says that they wandered in the wilderness, you know how many years? 40 years. So, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, you typically rough hand 40 years as what is kind of meant by a generation. Is it kind of like that? In other words, is there a fixed basic block of time for Eon as well? 
Or is Eon less about a specific length of time and more how we would use the phrase in Western history classes? For example, like the medieval era, early antiquity, the 400s, the 500s, late antiquity, the 900s, the 1100s, Reformation, Renaissance, Enlightenment, Modernity, Postmodernity, Industrialization, Globalization, I'm not sure, wherever we're at now. These are sort of eras, ages, in which certain technological, cultural, moral, philosophical changes are occurring. And then later, upon reflection, you can see in the dominant worldview shifts identifiable similarities of the people at that time. And you can identify, ah, that's that era, that age. Is it kind of like that? How does the Bible then cut up human history into, into ages? Is there a specific verse somewhere in Genesis 1 through 3 where, this, where God makes a clear promise? As I thought about it, I wondered, you know, Genesis 3.15, you know, the, the thing God says to the serpent of you're going to strike Eve's child's heel and he'll crush your head. Is that the promise? The church fathers certainly view that as the first preaching of the gospel talking about the Christus Victor theme, right? The Jesus by death destroyed death. Or, just to back up more broadly, is it simply the reality of God putting the tree of life right in the middle of the garden and giving humans full blessing to eat from the tree of life and live forever and giving a clear command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lest they, we, die. Clearly his intention and desire for humans is life and immortality, eternal life. Now, eternal life has at least two aspects. One of them is the duration, which is the eternal part, but the other is the kind of life. It's not just a duration, it's, it's a full divine life. So scripture actually says we were dead in transgressions and sins in which we live. So while we live, there's a form of living death. In other words, it was never God's intention for humans to die or to live the low, lower form of life that happened as a consequence of that fall. Check this out. 2 Corinthians 5. 1 through 5. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent, talking about our bodies, for in this tent we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Okay, that's already amazing. He says we know. Anytime Paul says, for we know, He's usually going to tell you something that, number number one, we don't know. And number two, it's so foundational that we ought to not only know it, but we ought to know it in our bones, and it ought to absolutely be a truth we live based on. When he says, and we know, he never just spouts random theory. He spouts essential bedrock Christian gospel truth that is transformative and powerful. 
And here he says, we know that if this little old body, this tent dies, that we have an eternal home dwelling permanent in heaven. We know this. And then in verse two, he says, as long as we're in this tent, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Okay, clothed. Oh, so we're, we're, we're naked, we're uncovered, we're exposed, we're vulnerable. It's temporary, it's impermanent. There's a sense of being alienated and kind of lost, being refugees, being homeless. And he says, we long and we groan. Why are we groaning? There's something about our mortality that is a threat of impermanence. And that threat of impermanence casts a pall of grief and a sense of impending tragedy over every single person who is self-aware enough to reflect on this thing. He takes for granted this is just truth. Every human who grasps their mortality in some sense deals with existential despair. I love that. I love that. Then, then, he keeps going, verse 3, if indeed when we've taken off this tent, we're not going to be found naked, verse 4, for while we are still in this tent, we groan under our burden. All right, now he's introduced, repeats the word groan again, and he now adds the word burden. There's a burden we are carrying, right? He's talking about burden. He's talking about groaning. He's talking about longing. He's talking about feeling homeless and naked and vulnerable. The same guy, by the way, who's saying this is the same guy who said he's learned the secret of of being content in all circumstances, in plenty and in want. He's the same guy who talked about rejoicing in the Lord always. And again, I'll say it, rejoice. He's the apostle of joy. But here he says, listen, at the core of human nature is an ache and a longing for a permanent home and for a kind of life, not just a duration of life, that we currently are not enjoying. And it's a true longing. It's not a deceptive longing. It's not a deceptive desire. It's a true desire based on something real that God built into our nature, something for which we were made in the beginning, which was promised in the nature of how he designed life. And now in its absence, the appetite for it tells us that something's missing and we are burdened. Verse four, for while we are still in this tent, we groan under our burden because we wish not to be unclothed, but to be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Well, that's fascinating language. Swallowed up by life as they swallowed the fruit Their eyes were opened and they were swallowed up by death. But what was meant to happen as they swallowed the fruit from the tree of life is that they were, that what is mortal, they were born mortal, by the way, was meant to grow up and be swallowed up by life. That's a fascinating idea that the church fathers really work with. They say Adam and Eve were not made perfect. They were made innocent and they were meant to grow up into eternal life, the divine nature. We were made to be swallowed up by life. And and then he says, verse five, he who has prepared us for this very thing, God actually made us for this very thing. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God 
who's given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Now we're on to assurance. Jesus baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. He overcame and uniquely receives from the Father the gift of the Holy Ghost, and he alone is the one who baptizes baptizes in the Holy Spirit because he is the one who's already been raised from the dead, who's already had that, has that new nature. It says in Scripture, in Philippians, that he will come, he will return, and when he does, he will use the power he has that enables him to bring everything under his control to transform our lowly bodies to be just like his heavenly body. He died once. He can never die again. Death has no hold on him and no mastery over him. He's defeated it. And when he comes again, he will transform our bodies. Right now, our spirits have union with him. Our bodies have not yet been transformed. But the Spirit has given us as a down payment, as a first installment, as a guarantee, as a foretaste of what is going to come in fullness later. It's an appetizer, but the meal's on the way. Here's some takeaway points from this for me. Eternity has been hardwired into the soul of every man, woman, and child. The reason I have sexual desire is because there's such a thing as romance. The reason I have hunger is because there's such a thing as food. The reason that I have thirst is because there's such a thing as water. The reason I get tired is because there's such a thing as sleep. And I need or properly crave these things because that is part of the design. We don't just want good things. We want those good things to stay. And in the world as it now stands, I don't care how good it is, nothing lasts. So even our pleasures and treasures and people come with an expiration date. And that is a form, friends, of torture. And Lewis says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, it is because I was made for another world. And I think Paul the Apostle would say, you get it. You get it. Now, here's my application. All of us feel this. And what if we are misdiagnosing the groaning, misunderstanding our own dissatisfaction with life, and then thinking, oh, something's wrong with me. Oh, I'm not spiritual enough. Oh, I don't believe the gospel enough. Oh, I need better friends. Oh, I need to move to a new state. Oh, I need a better car. Oh, I need more faith for healing. Oh, I need this. Oh, I need that. Oh, I need this. Oh, I need that. What if we are feeling some dissatisfaction that we are meant to feel as a longing for home, as a longing for God, as a longing for the kingdom of God to come to earth, for the king to return? The spirit and bride say, come. Why? Because when he comes, home comes. What if many of us are misdiagnosing the existential despair and then going to work trying to fix problems that are not the real source of the ache. I have regularly come back to the idea that my loneliness and my depression and my anxiety, properly interpreted, are yearnings for God. Not signs of something wrong with me, or at least not wrong with me alone, but signs that something is wrong with the very essence of the world. 
And I should not assume I'm alone in these things. If the great apostle, if he says, we all feel this, we know this, we groan, we long, we are burdened. And we're right to do that because God made us for more than this. We were made to be swallowed up by life. Eden is a promise, the tree of life. Okay, enough of that. I'm done.